Good morning. We had a really lively discussion last week, and it's really interesting how the Holy Spirit works, because um, if you watch my blogs, I started a blog last Friday, a week ago Friday, that uh, was a two-part blog, and the second part of that blog went up this week, which was on the judgment, and the investigative judgment, which of course was what we discussed uh, very intensely in class last week, and I thought you might want to check that out, and, uh, and if you like it... Uh, uh, we're basically trying to expand the traditional way we understand the investigative judgment. And so I, I challenge you to read it and maybe email it to every one of your Adventist friends that you know <laughs> and see what kind of feedback you get if you like it. Um, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come together today to study about you. We ask that your spirit and your presence will be with us. Our minds will be enlightened. We can experience your rejuvenating love in our hearts and minds. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 13 in the final lesson of our study guide, The Christian Life. And the title for the lesson is Mission. If somebody read for us the the memory text, 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do you feel prepared to give everyone an answer for the hope that you have? Should we practice today? I could put a chair up here and we could call you up one at a time. And Okay, I see the room's about to empty, so we won't do that. But, um, but think about that. Should we be prepared to give an answer? What is the hope that you have? What is your hope based in? In Jesus Christ. And how is your hope different than the hope of every other person on earth who says their hope is in Jesus Christ? Or is it the same hope? And there is no different hope that we have that, that every other person who, who uses the name Jesus has. Is there a difference in our hope? Wendell. Many people describe their hope in something Christ has done an act that he has done that has accomplished something for them. Whereas a different type of hope, which I would have, would be in the person that he is and what he means to me as that person. And do you connect that as the person he is with his father in any way? It's the same individual. Well, it's the same entity. Okay. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And see, I think that the key really is the hope, is what Christ brought us about the Father. And I think what if I heard you, I'm going to kind of, you know, rephrase what I think you were trying to say, is that some have hope in what Jesus has done to assuage, pay, make payment uh, to his Father. Our hope is in the reality that when we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father, that they are one. Are those the same hopes or are they somehow different? It should be the same. The, the, the hope is the same if we've had our payment made to an angry and wrathful God than if we see Jesus as representing the Father and revealing us the truth. Are those the same? No. But, but God isn't an angry, vengeful God. That's the point. That's exactly the point. But, but, 16 says that. But you know, he was talking about, I have the hope in what Jesus is. I have the hope in both what Jesus is and what he did. Because if, if you don't have hope... And what Jesus did, you can never have hope of what Jesus did. That's true. And he did, he did accomplish something. We might, we might have time to talk about that later. Um, somebody read for Sunday's, Sunday's lesson, the paragraph starting, Theologians Through the Ages. Theologians Through the Ages have debated whether or not God eventually will save all people. Some say God's love guarantees that. Eventually, no one will be lost. 
Others say that people who have never heard of Christ will get an opportunity to come to believe after death. Others, again, defend various alternative theories. The problem with theories, however, is that often they try to explain everything when, in fact, we must simply be content with what God has revealed to us. There are questions to which we do not know the answers. But we know that he is totally just in what he does, at the same time as limitless in his love. He also has made clear that people will have people have free will, and that it is, it is possible to be lost. In the end, there will be a separation between those who are saved and those who will face eternal death. And we know also that the gospel must be preached as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. Now, now as you hear this paragraph, it is absolutely true as finite beings, there's always things that we don't know. There's always things that are beyond our ability to comprehend. That's a reality. That's true. But do you like the way this was expressed in this paragraph? What is the, the feel? Did it, did it make you encouraged to, to stretch your mind and, and, and learn more? Or was it kind of encouraging you just to accept the fact you can't know stuff and just don't know stuff? It doesn't encourage you to ask questions. It doesn't encourage you to ask questions. If we take the philosophy expressed in the paragraph, let's take that philosophy. It says, the problem with theories, however, is that often they try to explain everything when, in fact, we must simply be content with what God has revealed to us. Well, in 1844, there was a group of people who had a theory. And they had a theory that the Lord was coming in 1844, and the Lord didn't come. Should they have been just content? Or should they have begun a study and intense search of Scripture to under and understand things they currently didn't understand? But, but you know, you, got, you don't misunderstand what he's trying to say here. If you're talking about being content, that's after you have done an exhaustive search and research, as our forefathers did, and then Deuteronomy 29 29 comes into being. I have a brother in law that's a, a, a great Christian now. He hasn't always been, but he's an engineer. And if he can't figure it out, he doesn't believe it. And it took him years to settle under the fact when he came to this thing. Deuteronomy 29 29 is a great promise for him. But he searched, he asked, he researched. That's what I think this is saying. Not that he says, okay, God says, uh, be content. No, God says, come on, challenge me. See, I, I think there's a place that, that we are content with the fact we can't know everything. But we should never be content with what we know. We should be content with the fact we can't know everything. But we should never be content with what we know. Does that, does that make sense? You know, in, in the 15th century, there was the Black Death, the bubonic plague ravaged Europe. They didn't have answers. They didn't know what was happening. The priests and the laity alike attributed this to the anger and wrath of God punishing the nations. This is, what, this is the reality of what was going on uh, for the people at that day. Should they have taken the approach, well, God hasn't revealed it to us, or, and, and we don't understand it, or should they have taken the approach, let's begin searching, let's begin trying to figure out. And eventually, we did figure out that it was a bacterial infection carried by fleas. So, yeah, we can't know everything, but should we rest satisfied simply not knowing, or should we always be pressing forward to know more? Yes. In John 16, 13, it says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. That implies to me that there is new things to come that he will reveal truth that our forefathers did not know. I like it. 
And you put together with that what Jesus says to his disciples, I have much to tell you, but you're unable. So did, did Jesus express that from the Godhead, the Godhead would like to reveal more to us? They would like us to understand more. So the limiting factor is not that God would like us not to grow in knowledge. Limiting factors are either willingness and and do the concepts or ideas we hold about whether we can or should grow in knowledge have an impact on whether we do? If we accept the idea that, well, you know, we shouldn't ask questions, what's been revealed has been revealed, there's no new truth to learn, does that actually close the mind to, to, to growing? And so, yes, let's accept the reality that we're finite and there's always more to learn. But let's never rest content in our current understanding. Let's be pressing forward. Truth unfolding over time. This is out of a book called Councils to Writers, page 38. It says, Whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clear understanding of the word. They will discern new light and beauty in its sacred truths. This has been true in the history of the church in all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. But as real spiritual life declines... It has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of truth. Men rest satisfied with the light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of scriptures. They become conservative. We don't want to be conservative Christians, do we? They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. The fact that there is no controversy or agitation among God's people should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine there is reason to fear that they might not be clearly discriminating between truth and error. When no new questions are started by investigation of Scripture, when no differences of opinion arise which will set men to searching the Bible for themselves to make sure that they have the truth, there will be many now, as in ancient times, who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what. So I think there's a challenge before us to keep the mind open, ask questions, dig, uh, challenge the, the traditional understandings of things. That's what we did on our website this week with the investigative judgment. We are pushing the understanding, uh, taking the scriptures and allowing it to lead us in maybe new insights, unfolding a, a truth for this time. If somebody asks if you're a conservative Christian, you should say, well, when they pass the offering plate, would you like me to be conservative or liberal? <laughs> you see? Um, those words have different meaning depending on the context. All right, Monday's lesson. Somebody read the second paragraph, Monday's lesson. Actually, it's a long paragraph, so let's not read the whole thing. It says, basically, it's talking about the gospels to be preached to all the nation, and that uh, looking at the general conference statistics, there's a Seventh-day Adventist church in many countries of the world, more than 200 countries now, but that there are some places where there is not a, a presence yet in the world, and they list some of those presents, like North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Yemen, and some of these places. As we look at that about the gospel being preached to the world, can we assume that if there is a Christian presence somewhere in the world, in a country, then the gospel has been preached there? Can we assume that if a Seventh-day Adventist presence has been somewhere in the world, we have an established, organized church in this part of the world, that we can make an assumption that the gospel has been preached there? We can't assume it's been preached here in Palestine. We can't assume that. When Christ came to earth the first time, at, at that time in his, human history, what was the organized body on earth that God had chosen, blessed, and empowered to take the gospel to the world? Jewish the Jewish nation. And what message were they taking to the world at that time? 
Matthew 23, 15, Jesus speaking, so I think we can have some confidence in the, the, the accuracy of this, uh, this conclusion. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. Now, that was the organized body on earth at the time that had been blessed with everything that God could bless them with. And when they were preaching the message to win people to conversion, Jesus said they were binding them more into hell. How could that be? Could Christians and even Adventists today be in danger of that same problem? So let's go through what were the Jews doing. The Jews were preaching the wrong day of worship. They were preaching unhealthful lifestyle. Uh, That we should not pay our tithes and offerings. Dressing uh, provocatively. Teaching evolutionary origins of of humanity. Allowing homosexual leaders in the church. Teaching lies about God. Notice the issue. All the stuff that we focus on as being somehow important isn't the issue. They were teaching lies about God. And that then bound the mind. Because what is the war that we fight over? Give me some text of what the core issue is. Throw some text out at me. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. What's the war over? There it is. We demolish every stronghold that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Life eternal is? Knowing God. Uh, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness for what may be known about God has been revealed to them. But they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. And their minds became dark and futile and depraved. The issue has always been over the truth about God. That's what it started in heaven. That's what it continues to be about on earth. So what good news do we here today have to take to the world? What message do we have that could be good news for the world to hear? The truth about God. And let's see if we can't clarify that and read the top question in Tuesday's lesson, somebody. What special message is to be proclaimed by God's people in the time of the end? Reference Revelation 14, 6-12. And, and behind it, the next what question. What is your understanding of that message? Let's talk about that message. Has anybody heard of the third angel's message? The three angel's messages? Can you explain them quite clearly and concisely? Well, let's look at those. Turn in your Bibles, Revelation 14, 6 through 12. We're going to go through these. Where is the good news? Where do you see the beauty of God in these passages? Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel, the eternal good news to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the spring of waters. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength in the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for the patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey the commandments of God and remain faithful to Jesus. 
Do you all feel... Pardon? Good news. Good news. Well, let's start with it. What do the angels represent? Us, the people of Earth. Right here in the front. Us, the people of Earth. Do you all agree with that? See, the word angel means messenger. And so this is a, a, a messenger empowered with a heavenly message, is what this is. It is a people that rise up. The Greek there is angelos, which means messenger, envoy, one who is sent, a messenger from God. John 20, 21, Jesus speaking. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. you. Have we been sent as Christ's messengers? Yes. So this is talking about an end-time group, an end-time movement, who is to rise up with a special message from God for the world. But notice this messenger is flying in midair with the eternal gospel. What does it mean, flying in midair? Some translations will say, uh, heaven, flying in mid-heaven. Is heaven more accurate? In other words... Heaven where God resides, is that where the message is going to be flying through the universe and the cosmos? Or is this message for the people of earth? Okay, so when it says heaven, if it translates heaven, it's really talking about the atmosphere or the midair. So midair is probably more accurate because this is an end time message for the people of earth, not for the angelic beings in heaven. Now what do you think it means fly through midair? Fast. Pardon? Fast. Fast? Worldwide? Seen all over the world. How about Ephesians 2, 1 and 2? Just trigger a little thought in your mind as you think about a message that flies in midair. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air? The things of the world are not the things of heaven. Do we have a message that is to go through, and a message that is to, how did Jesus put it? The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Do we have a message that is to go through the principles of this world, the belief systems of this world, the distortions about God taught by the kingdom of the air? Do we have a message that is to transcend all that, break through, break down barriers, free minds? Is is a message that that is to go through midair? Right through the, the heart of Satan's kingdom. Could that include the satellite systems, 3 a.m. Depends on what message they're preaching, preaching, doesn't it? There's a lot of satellite waves going through the actual physical air that have things that are adding to the darkness. What do you all think about that? Do we have a message? Regardless of whether it's taught person to person, whether it's through radio waves or satellite waves, do we have a message, though, that cuts through the lies of Satan mm-hmm. and sets minds free? And it's to go worldwide. Ever since your first question, the text that comes to my mind is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And Christ said, not only as Father sent me, so send I you, but his mission was to reveal the Father. The Father. So when Christ is in us, who are we to be revealing? The Father. Yeah, God in us. That's, I love that, yeah. So... Then, continuing on in our first angel's message, fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and earth and the seas and the springs. Uh, what does it mean to fear God in this context? Reverence and worship and awe and admiration. Yes, how do we know? How do we know it's not terror? How do we know it's not being, oh, I'm scared of you? How do we know it's not that? I like this. You hear this? Because God is love, and perfect love casts out all 
Cheer, not all reverence, <laughs> but all terror. And then the people who in the text are to be fearing God, who are they? The ones that are bringing him glory. They're the ones who are to be fearing God. So it's, if they're bringing him glory, it means they know him. God is love. Love casts out fear. So this is not terror, dread, anxiety. This is awe, admiration, respect. Yes, some hands. Whenever God appeared to human beings, either as himself or as angels, the first thing they would say is, don't be afraid. That's right. There's no reason to be afraid. Yes. I think it calls us back to his creatorship. And that's what God's calling us back. These messages are calling back to the creator. Because if he can create the world, he can recreate us. And if you, and the Bible's promises, seasons will come and go. You know, we, we have a world right now that's disrupted by tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. We know that summer's going to come here pretty soon. Fall's going to come. Winter's going to follow that. Spring's going to follow that. You can you can take that to the bank. And God has called us back to His creatorship. Look, I'm God's created you. I've created the world, and we see His creation. We see His love in that around us. Did the Jews in Christ's day doubt God's creatorship? No. Were they prepared to love and honor the Creator? No. <laughs> So can you be a believer in the creatorship of God and still want to crucify him? So there's more going on. I'm not disagreeing with you. We need to see God as creator. We need to get away from evolutionary distortions that, that move us away from God. But seeing his creatorship alone isn't really enough to bring us back to that unity. Of course not, but that's where you start. Yeah, in Romans, we're told in the last part of chapter 1. Some people have never heard of Jesus Christ, have never heard a sermon, never heard talk like you're talking. How are they judged in the end? Romans 1, 20, by his creation. So it is a big part of it. By Romans chapter 2, those who have not heard the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are considered law to themselves, are conscience-bearing witness, showing that the law has been written on their hearts and minds, which is, of course, the new covenant experience. So, back into the Revelation text here, what talks about, where it does talk about worshiping who made the heavens, earth, sea, and springs. Right before it says that, right before it says that, it says something else. Why are we to give him glory? By the way, what's it mean to give him glory? To sing hallelujahs and glories in church on Sabbath morning? To reflect his character. To respect or reflect? reflect. To reflect, to reveal. See, God's glory is his character. And we glorify him by living a life of love. By showing his character in the way we treat others. That's how we bring him glory. Is that not right? Okay, so we're going to give him glory because there's a reason given for all this. Fear God. Be in admiration, be in respect, be overwhelmed with the incredible graciousness of this, this creator of the entire universe who loves you so much that he came one of you and humbled himself all the way to the point of the cross. Be in admiration of this incredible being. Give him glory. Become like him. Be unified back with him. Love others like he loves you. Because the hour of his judgment. Yes, the hour where he will sit in judgment over you has come. Oh, Oh, I got that wrong. Do you know what I just said is the way it's taught? The way that it is, is taught in our church is that there is an investigative judgment going on in heaven right now, and God and the holy beings in heaven are going through the record books and making judgments in heaven about who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost. That's how it's taught. And we as righteous should be elated that the wicked are going to be punished. That's what's being taught. Yeah. Well... I would suggest to you that in the context, that's not what it means. The hour of his judgment has come. The hour in which it is time for us. Remember, what did the war in heaven start over? What did Lucifer in heaven do? 
He told lies about God to the other beings in heaven. Did that put them in a position they had to make a decision? They had to make a decision based on what? What was the decision? What was the core issue in the decision those heavenly angels had to make? Whether they trust God or don't trust God. Wasn't that the decision they had to make? They were judging whether God was trustworthy or untrustworthy. And as we said, the other text we just went through in the scripture is all about coming back to the true knowledge of God. We have to make a judgment. The hour of his judgment has come. He's calling for a group of people who know him so well, who can be such shining lights that the rest of the world who don't know him can look and say, whoa, God is like this people? Hey, I can trust a God like that. The hour of his judgment has come. Judge rightly. Now, some people believe that God's judgment is what determines our destiny. That there's a judgment where he sits in judgment over us, and his judgment over us determines our destiny. The Bible does not teach that. There are plenty of judgment statements, and it's on my blog for this week. But there's an example of God's judgment, Hosea 4.17. Hosea 4.17, God made a judgment about Ephraim. Ephraim is tied to his idols. Leave him alone. Was that a judgment that God just made? Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. That was a judgment. There's nothing more we can do. Did God's judgment on Ephraim determine or cause Ephraim to be tied to his idols? No. In the end, when God makes judgments on people, is God's judgments causative or determining it or simply merely verifying the condition that already exists. That's all it is. And will it, true or false, will your judgment of God, whether he is trustworthy or not trustworthy, determine what happens to you? If you judge God trustworthy, what do you do? Do you open your heart to God if you trust him? And if you open your heart to God, then what does he do if you open your heart to him? He fills you with his spirit. He transforms. He regenerates. He recreates. He writes his law in your heart and mind. All these things he does, but he only does it to people who trust him. Is that not right? If you don't trust him, will you open your heart to him? If you don't trust him, will the Holy Spirit transform and heal and regenerate you? No. See, our judgment of God determines whether we will open our heart to him and judge him or not and and let him heal us or not. Is there a Bible text that talks about God being judged? May you win your case when you bring it into court. Romans 3, 4. And you look at various translations. Some say, may you win your case when you take it into court. Some say, God, may you win when you are being judged. May you, may you be proved right when you are judged. Proved right where? Pro- where does God want to be proved right? In your heart. God wants to be proved right in your heart and mind. Think of this metaphor. Husbands and wives in the room and those who hope one day to have husbands and wives. Imagine that your spouse that you love deeply has had someone come to them and tell malicious lies about you, that you are a cheat and a fraud and you've been sleeping around town and you're untrustworthy and, and all these horrible things about you. And the person who tells them is such a good consummate liar, maybe it's even their own brother or sister, somebody really close. And if they believe those lies, what's going to happen in your relationship? Will intimacy be broken down? Will trust be broken? Now, if you're the loving, loyal, faithful spouse who's been lied about, what do you want to happen in the heart of your spouse who believes the lies? Do you want them to come judge you rightly? Yes. Don't you want them to make a judgment? 
Come examine me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come look at the truth. Come check things out. Make a judgment. I'm not what's been said about me. You can trust me. Isn't that what you want? That's what God wants. He wants us to check him out. He wants us to taste and see that he is good and make a judgment that he is trustworthy. Next message. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries. And then this, this particular angel's message has the same message in Revelation 18, 1-4. It adds a little bit of, of texture to the message. And you'll see that it's the same message when we go in Revelation 18, 1-4. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. And the earth was illuminated by a splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Is this not the same message? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt of every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you shall not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. What is this talking about? What is the maddening wines? The lies about God. What is it we, we get drunk on? You know, Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is he talking physical ingestion? Or is he talking about taking something into the heart and mind? Okay? We're, taking the, we're supposed to be taking the purity, the holiness of Christ into our character. This other system has maddening wine. No, it's maddening wine. It makes you go mad. It destroys your faculties. It makes you unreasonable. It makes you superstitious. It makes you believe things that are nonsense. It's maddening. It incites fear and anxiety and worry. That's what this other doctrine does. Now, can anybody think what could be the heart of this doctrine? What would it be about? Yes, can you give me any examples of, of, of doctrines about God that incite fear and incite anxiety and make us more worried? Because, remember, perfect love casts out all fear. So we have doctrines that make our fear tighter go up. Those doctrines are not about the God of love. They're about the lies. So what kind of doctrines do that? Eternal burning hell. Now, he'll burn you for a while, inflicting upon you an external penalty that you deserve so justice can be served. This is commonly taught in our church. And, and some claim, you know, there's some claim in our church that the idea that God will inflict pain and fire on somebody, keeping them alive in the flames as long as they deserve so that justice can be served, is actually more gracious than an eternal burning hell. Now, on the surface, without thinking, that almost sounds true, doesn't it? That God is a more gracious God that way. But think it through. You see, those who teach an eternal burning hell teach it because they believe another lie that at creation, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were perfect, there, at that point, God endowed them with immortality. He created them with a piece of them, we call it a soul or a spirit, that can never die. And then when they rebelled, God's heart breaks that they won't come to reconciliation. He hates it that they won't be with him, but, but, but he can't force them to love him. He can't force them to come back. And so they go to a place of outer darkness away from him where there's only pain and suffering, but it breaks his heart. We, on the other hand, some in our church, not us in this room, but some in this church teach that no man is mortal. Now, he doesn't have an immortal soul that lives on forever and ever. He can die. 
Now, which is, when the, when the flames come out from God's presence, what do you think is more powerful, a, a flamethrower that we have on earth or, or the flames from God? A nuclear weapon or the flames from God? So when the flames come out from God, if, if we had a nuclear weapon go off right here in this room, right now, boom, how long would we suffer in those flames? A fraction of a second, we'd be vaporized. So, if people are in physical flames of fire, suffering for days and days, well, that means God is using His power to perform a miracle to keep them alive so they can suffer. Which God do you like better? Whoa, that's not so pretty. Fortunately, it's neither of those. But that doctrine, either one of those doctrines, if you believe that God will perform a miracle, if you don't love Him, guys, all I want is your love. I've sent my son. I sent all the blessings to you. Ultimately, my son to die for you because I love you so much. But if you don't love me back, I will keep you alive in the fires and make you pay for not loving me. How does that work for you? Try that on your spouse tonight. I've got gasoline in the garage. I'm going to pour it on you and light you on fire if you don't love me. You see, those kind of ideas make you afraid. Fear levels go up, don't they? Yes, it's a distortion. It's not right. We don't necessarily have time to go into the the entire construct of what is right about that teaching. Maybe we will get to it in in the Third Angel's Message. The Third Angel's Message talks about that. I think we'll have to do it. But doctrines that incite fear. The core. What is the core wine that I understand? The core lie? It comes from paganism. And the heart of paganism is angry, wrathful gods who require work from their worshippers, some type of appeasement, bringing an offering, bringing a sacrifice, doing some work, doing something to assuage the wrath of the angry God, to merit, earn, or somehow uh, you know, purchase forgiveness, pardon, and grace, and goodness from your God. Now, what is the heart of Catholicism? It's all about things being done to God. You've got Jesus, Mary, and all the saints pleading to God on our behalf. You have works, the sacraments, and the, and the various indulgences, and the various uh, uh, penances that you have to do to somehow uh, you know, bring good favor upon yourself with God. All these things try to merit it. Now, Protestantism began to, to protest some of the abuses of this system, having read the scriptures. But, but at the core of all Protestant churches still, is it not taught that Jesus died to pay the legal penalty of our sin debt to his father so the father wouldn't have to kill us. Or that the father killed his son. Well, in, in paying, that sin debt, the, the, paying that sin debt, the father executed his son on the cross as justice, retributive justice required. It's not the gospel. And thus God is still waiting for the gospel of the kingdom to be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. The end hasn't come because the gospel of the kingdom hasn't gone forward. This other thing This other menagerie, this other distortion has gone to the world and all the world is drinking this wine. And what happens when you drink this wine? There are consequences. When you violate God's law, one of his laws is the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Uh, If you're in a relationship and you put a gun to the person's head that you're dating and say, love me or I'm going to kill you, and you mean it, if you threaten, there are consequences that come from that. Consequence number one, love is damaged. The person doesn't warm to you and want to be with you. They love you less, and they want to get away, and you want to rebel, get free from that. But if you stay, guess what happens if you choose to stay and you have the option to leave? You lose your ability to think and reason. You lose your individuality. You start seeing the world through the lens of the person that you surrender your control to. This happens spiritually. When we worship a God who says, love me or I'll kill you, love is destroyed in the heart of those worshipers. 
Thus Jesus said, at the end of time, the love of many will wax cold. Paul says that they will be lovers of themselves and all these things, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. You see, these are not the agnostics he's talking about. These are these people of a form of godliness. They're, they're Christian, church-going people, but there's no love in the heart. Why? Because they worship of God who threatens them. And when you worship a God who threatens you, it destroys love and incites rebellion. And it, when you stay voluntarily in a system like that, you lose your ability to think and reason, and you become non-thinking entities. Well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We just do what the Bible says. We don't ask questions around here. And you can do all types of things like set up laws, put in judges, and begin legislating your system upon others because that's what should be done. We don't think here. Or you rebel completely against it, and you throw off the idea of God altogether. And you become an agnostic or an atheist, and God doesn't exist. Still drinking the wine of Babylon. And the core is this lie about God. And the world is reacting to it. The entire world is reacting. We have a message that can set them free. God is not like that. Not at all like that. You have real freedom. He would rather die than use his power to coerce you and pressure you. And in fact, he did. Questions, thoughts about the first and the second? Well, the second word says, come out of her, my people. That just shows that God has people in other churches, not, yes. not like we think just in our church. Oh, I think that's beautifully said, and I'm so glad you pointed that out. Come out of her, my people. There are people in these other organizations that have never heard the truth about God. They're worshiping God, that they the only construct they've ever been given, but their heart longs for the truth. Let me tell you, the world is hungry. Hungry for the truth about God. When I travel around this country and present this, there are just masses of people love this message. Inside our church, outside our church, there is a resonance in people's hearts with a God that actually is a God of love. I think what it also shows is that Babylon can exist in our church as well. Thoughts about that? Well, if you believe life in any context, wherever you are, you're in Babylon. It's a state of being. Um, was it is a physical place. So yeah, you can be in the church and this is out of a book called the Acts of the Apostles, page 9. It says, From the beginning it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world his fullness and his sufficiency. The members of the church, those whom he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light, are to show forth his glory. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ, and through the church will eventually be manifest, even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. Do you experience the final and full display of God's love currently in our church? Well, what can we do about that? How can we open our hearts to be more fully conduits of that love so that this church here today, we can start experiencing God's love? Isn't that our goal? What is it that keeps us from experiencing God's love? In your own life individually, if you look in your hearts, I will tell you, what it keeps us back is fear. It's fear. Fear of what other people will think. Fear of not being accepted. Fear of being laughed at. Fear of uh, embarrassment. Fear of insecurity. I mean, is it not fear that holds us back from loving people? Perfect love casts out all fear. This is the battle we are all fighting in our own hearts between love and fear. God's love is to be poured into our hearts. And when God's love is poured into our hearts, we will begin, begin that. The message that is to go to the world in Christ Object Lessons, page 415. 
It said it is through the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Does that kind of make you think of that angel that comes with a message that's going to illuminate the world? Okay, um, His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, the mercy and truth. Remember, fear God and give glory to him. An illuminating message of God's character. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. That is the message we are to be taking to the world. That is to free hearts and minds from the lies that hold us in bondage. So, does anybody want or need to talk about the third angel's message and what that means about the fire and brimstone? Or is everybody pretty clear on that? It's actually not in my notes, but we can talk about it. Does anybody have a need? I need to hear if you do, because if not, we're going to move on. Yes. You want to talk about it. Thank you. Courageous person over there. Not afraid to speak her mind. I like that. Good. Yes, okay, so we need to talk about that. The, the, the fire and the brimstone. What does it say in that third angel's message? That the, the, the anger, the wrath of God is being poured out without mixture. So it says, um, God's fury, which has been poured out into full strength, the cup of his wrath, he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. This, what does it mean? Well, the short version. The short version, because we don't have time for the long version today. The long version is on the website, and it's under the question of punishment, um, 1, 2, and 3, on our website, under the blogs. The Bible says in, in uh, Hebrews twelve twenty nine, Our God is a consuming fire. What does God's consuming fire consume? Sin. When, when Moses talked to God at the bush, what was the bush doing? Did the bush get consumed? When Moses came down from God's presence, what was Moses' face doing? Did Moses' whiskers get consumed? When the temple was dedicated, the priests could not enter the day of Solomon's temple dedication because, anybody know why they could not go in the building? The brightness of God's glory was too intense, they couldn't handle it. Did the building get consumed? No. In Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu brought out unauthorized fire before the Lord. And it says, this is the Bible, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And the next verse, Moses told the cousins to go in and drag them out still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower and consume you, will somebody be able to take you out still in your clothes? Okay, this fire is a little bit interesting then, isn't it? This is not the fire that we often talk about, the fire of combustion, the fire that melts elements. You see, this is the fire that is to consume what? Sin. Yeah, what is sin made out of? You see, this is made out of paper. The chair you're on is made out of some probably you know, petroleum product of some kind. Um, what is sin made out of? Ideas. Thoughts, ideas, beliefs, lies. At its root, sin has two elements. Lies, Satan is the father of. And selfishness. Yes, everybody agree? And what is it that consumes or destroys a lie? If it comes into your mind, it will destroy a lie. Truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of? Truth. And what is it that destroys selfishness? Love. God is love. So when the Spirit falls, it is the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, what did they see? Tongues of fire. Did anyone get burned? Did the building burn down? But did dissension and disagreement and disharmony in their hearts get burned out? And they had unity. This is the fire 
and the righteous will spend eternity dwelling in the fire. And if you read the text right there in Revelation, the third angel's message, it says that the, the fire, the burning brimstone there, is, happens in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. That's where this takes place. And the word translated brimstone or sulfurous flames is the Greek word theon, T-H-I-O-N, which is the neutered form of theos, which we get the word theology, theologian. Theos means divine, God or Godhead. This word translated brimstone is theon. It is the fire of God that Elijah rode in when he rode in a chariot of fire that in Revelation, excuse me, Daniel chapter 7, it says that God sat on his throne and flames of fire came out, rivers of fire came out, and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stood in the fire. It says in Ezekiel chapter 28 that Lucifer used to walk among the, quote, fiery stones of God's presence. The theon is the fire of God's presence, which is the fire of truth and love. And it doesn't burn physical material substances. It burns out sin. And so when a heart and mind is solidified in sin, in selfishness, in lies, and comes face to face with absolute, undiluted truth and love, what's going to happen in that heart and mind? Cleansing. Cleansing? Pain. Pain. See, I have patients who were molested as kids. And inevitably, as we're doing therapy together, they will say things, I just wish my mom and dad could admit what they did. Just wish they could acknowledge it. And I said, okay, let's take that. If they were today, right now on earth, right here, this moment, actually to fully acknowledge and admit what they did, what would they then experience? Would they experience guilt, shame, self-loathing, self-disgust? Would there be a process of dying to self that would be horrible and excruciating, even right now, still under the umbrella of God's grace, under the umbrella of God's love, with God's Holy Spirit and holy angels all working to heal that person? Won't there still be a hard agony and suffering to go through in that process? What will it be like for those who refuse that process now, who build up lie after lie, make excuses, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, if she hadn't brought me the fruit, and we lie after lie to hide behind so we don't experience that now, when they come face to face with all truth and, they, and their lies can no longer shield them from the reality of their condition and what they have done to others. And they experience the full weight, not only of what their actions did, but the full weight of the pain that their actions caused their kids. What will that be like on that day? That's hell. Is it inflicted by God or is it simply coming to experience yourself the way you really are? Because you can't hide from it anymore. This is what happens when we come into the flames of God's presence. We are either transformed now, healed, regenerated, so that we rejoice in his presence and ride that fiery chariot into heaven, loving his love and his truth. Or, like in Thessalonians, they perish because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be healed or saved. Yes? So, pretty much what you're saying, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah was... That concept that you just explained? Sodom and Gomorrah was a different circumstance. Sodom and Gomorrah was the eternal death from which there is no resurrection, or will everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah be raised? Will everyone be raised in Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. Yeah. It's no different. Sodom and Gomorrah's death, even though, just like Nadab and Abihu. Okay? That the deaths there were the same death as the flood, the same death as that death that, that Jesus called asleep. But was it fire and brimstone, or was it. No, I think it was actually physical fire in that case. Just like you had the fire come down and consume Elijah's offering. That was physical fire. God can use physical fire at times, but that is not the fire that we find described here. Now, there is another fire after the people are dead. And, and Malachi and both Peter talk about these. 
where the elements melt in the fervent heat. So that's a cleansing, re, re, restoring, rebuilding of the earth fire, which happens after the fires of truth and love flow free on earth again. Russell. Talk a little bit about the next part of that Revelation passage, the, the smoke of their torment rising forever. What do you all think that means, the smoke of the torment rising forever? Does that mean they're being tormented forever? No. What does the smoke rising mean? Yes. It just means that the smoke just dissipates forever. It just dissipates. It, it, keeps, it keeps diluting. It keeps diluting throughout eternity. I kind of like that. I really do. Uh, in, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, they would burn incense on the altar. And that would send up fragrant smoke. What did that smoke represent? Thoughts, prayers, praise, wishes. Okay. So what was ascending symbolically in the smoke was their prayers, their thought attitude, and so forth. So what is ascending in, from the wicked but they're being, is their suffering? Our memory of it. The truth about their condition is being revealed to all the universe to see. Will there be a memory in the universe forever and ever about what happened there? Yes. Wipe away all tears. Does that mean he wipes away all memories so we have amnesia and everyone forgets what happened on earth? All of our old ones, we couldn't remember without tears. If they weren't there and we remembered them, then, then there'd be tears rising. Is that true? Hmm. Well, Jesus would have scars on his hand, side, and feet if we were going to forget everything. That is a constant reminder that Nahum 1 9 says sin will never rise its ugly head again. Why won't sin ever rise again? If we forget what happened on earth, then aren't we in danger of it all happening again? The only protection we have for it happening again is to remember the lessons that. that tri- I can't agree. I can't agree. We will so much have in our heart to obey God by the time we're there that never again will we think about this it says in Revelation that in the new heaven and the earth, we're going to sing a song of our experience. How can we sing a song of our experience if we don't know what our experience was? Maybe our experience has, song has to remind us. So then we remember as we sing the song. There's a lot. I don't think we remember. Does that answer the smoke ascending question? She's thinking outside of the box. In your earlier statement, you said, let's talk... Just don't disagree with you. Oh, absolutely. There, there are a whole lot of other passages and texts that, uh, um, that I don't have off the tip of my mind right now that actually um, support this idea that we remember. How about, um, uh, just off the top of my mind, will we remember our loved ones in heaven? Will you know our brothers and sisters and our mothers and fathers and our children? Will we know them? Yes. Well, you know what? My mother died a Christian, but she wasn't a Christian when I was growing up. And I would beat so much all the time. I was the only Christian in the family. And I would beat so much of Rachel Strath. Even if she's in heaven, I don't want to remember that. And I'm sure you don't. Uh-huh. Uh, as our perspective grows, though, our way of understanding all those experiences changes. And we instead, if you had a child who was um, dying of leukemia, terribly sick, and a doctor came and handed them a, a, a medicine, they took that pill in moments, they're cured and healthy. Would you want to forget that entire experience, or would you want to remember so you could appreciate that doctor? No, I'd want to forget it. So then, so then every time you saw that doctor, you have no appreciation for him whatsoever? But we'd have to remember that he saved our life in order to appreciate him. Okay. But Jesus said those who 
Jesus said about the woman whose feet were washed, uh, the, the woman who came to anoint his feet, he said, those who are forgiven much, love much. If we forget how much we're forgiven, guess what happens to how much we love him? I don't agree that. <laughs> that's okay. We, we, everybody is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. When we get to the new heaven and the earth, and, and there we find Solomon, and, and we find, actually we find King David speaking with Uriah, and here comes Bathsheba. Well, they know each other. And as they're talking, the three of them, here comes Solomon and says, Hey, Mom. And Uriah looks at Bathsheba and said, I didn't realize I left you a child. Are they going to remember and know, or will they not know? It's like, I have a mystery to me how that happened. All right, we got to move on. we got to move on. Um, yes. I have one more question. Yes. The first part of verse 11, I understand that. That's clear in my mind, mostly. The second part of verse 11 Read it. is really hard for me. There is no relief day or night for those who worship the beast in its image. And no relief. Some say no rest. Yeah. Okay, no rest. That's right. I'm glad you brought that back up. Put that together in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, where it talks about those in rebellion against God in the Old Testament system, out in the wilderness. They never entered God's rest because they were in disobedience. No rest. Where do we get rest from? You see, those who come to trust God experience rest. Rest from what? Rest from anxiety. Rest from fear. Rest from the worries of the world. Rest from the cares. Rest for fighting to try and survive. That survival of the fittest, we're always looking out for number one and, and struggling and worrying. When we come to trust God, we experience rest. Take my yoke upon you. Yes, and those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down by sunset on Friday so they could go home and keep which day? The Sabbath day. You see, we can keep the Sabbath day and crucify Christ and not enter his rest. Those Jews in the wilderness who never obeyed were keeping the Sabbath every week because manna was only coming down on Fridays, a double portion, and they couldn't go out and collect it on Sabbath. So they were, uh, there was a forced rest every Sabbath, if you remember. They'd be stoned if they went out and started a fire. So it's more than just a day. The entering of the rest is entering that rest relationship where we trust God with our heart, our mind, our future, our character. We have rest because we are not struggling to survive and protect ourselves anymore. Those who don't trust God never enter that rest. There's no rest for them, day or night. They're constantly struggling, constantly fighting. Look around the world, don't you see it? Yeah. Haven't you ever been there? Yeah, it's no fun. In closing, I'm just, we're not going to have time to go through it, but in Thursday's lesson, it talks about that the Bible... Uh, has, uh, has various types of doctrines. Unsound doctrine will often point us away from Christ in that um, if there is no connection with Jesus Christ, the doctrine will be no more than a piece of technical information. In other words, connecting doctrines to Christ and, and, and to God. And I think that's an absolutely wonderful thing for you to think about and the doctrines you believe. And so I listed in the notes, and we don't have time to talk about them, but I'll just run through some of the questions you can process through. What do we learn about God if we believe man is immortal? What do we learn about God if we believe man is mortal? We learn different things. For instance, if we believe man is immortal, then we learn God doesn't have very good foreknowledge because he didn't figure out beforehand that if he created immortal man that they're going to rebel and suffer forever and eternity. So his vision isn't very good. We learn some bad things about God if man is immortal. We learn that men will suffer eternity and God's got a place where his creatures torment forever. I mean, we learn bad things about God if we believe that man is immortal. Um, What do we learn about God if we believe Christ was a created being? What do we learn about God if we believe that Christ was divine and fully divine and, and as the Father. I mean, these are different things taught about different doctrines people hold, and they have different reflections of the kind of person God is. What do we learn about God if we believe the wicked die in the end because God inflicts it? What do we learn about God 
when we believe the wicked die in the end as a natural result of being so out of harmony with God, they cannot survive in his presence. What do we learn about God if we believe Jesus died to pay our legal debt, to assuage the angry wrath of his Father, to pay the demands of retributive justice? What do we learn about God if we believe Jesus died to reveal the truth about God and to reverse the damage sin caused humanity, providing the remedy for sin? And I've got a whole lot of questions like this in our notes that I don't have time to go through. But I encourage you to take those and process through them. We learn different things about God based on the doctrines we hold and we believe. And there are two pictures of God out there being taught. And we have a gospel message that is to go to the world that the Father is just like Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such extreme lengths to bring us the truth. We know there's an active enemy out there who doesn't want us to see it. He works so hard to confuse our mind, to get us to believe things that, that are inconsistent, that don't make sense, and that make you look bad. Lord, send your spirit. Enlighten us to see the truth. Help us be able to put the pieces of your word, your inspired record together, that we can see you as clearly as Jesus revealed you to be, and that we can then go out and share this powerful saving message with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.